traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B48-270 With the provinces loyal and her throne unchallenged, Zenobia was likely starting to think beyond Palmyra's immediate needs and towards securing its future. Like Odinathus, she probably assumed that future would be built on trade backed up by sufficient military power to deter any would-be bandits. And, of course, on the scale she was operating, bandits could mean imperial rivals just as soon as Bedouin raiders. In short, Zenobia now had something. Call it a kingdom or call it an empire. And the question wasn't just how to protect it, but how to make it thrive. Her husband's answer had been attacking Persia to weaken the Sassanid hold on trade while filling Palmyrene coffers, which was a pretty reasonable approach given the circumstances. But then Odinathus had been loyal to Rome, and Rome had given him honors and power, all of which made certain other options unthinkable. Whatever her arrangement with Claudius Gothicus, after being attacked by a Roman army, Zenobia decided the unthinkable options were very much back on the table. Let's imagine a hypothetical place that might be a good fit with Palmyra. Someplace wealthy, with abundant agriculture and bustling ports for shipping goods between India and the West. A place with a well-developed, well-maintained, and well-guarded system of overland trade routes, run in a fashion not very different from the caravan trade of Palmyra. A place with some basic Palmyrene infrastructure of both merchant colonies and military units. Let's also imagine that, like Palmyra, this place had experienced a decline in trade at least partly due to heavy taxation and general financial mismanagement. Let's imagine this place might be ready for a change. Just for convenience, let's call it Egypt. And, of course, I know what you're thinking. Scott, Egypt's been Roman for like 300 years. In fact, it started being Roman in the very first episode of this podcast series. And ever since then, it's been one of the places where the Romans will brook zero mischief. And, of course, you're right. But as long as we're here, let's recall some historical precedents. 
like the guy who launched a revolt in Syria, then immediately headed down to Egypt in order to leverage the grain supply in his bid for imperial power. Whatever happened to that guy? Oh yeah, he became the Emperor Vespasian. Then, of course, there was Avidius Cassius, the famous Syrian governor and general, who'd made sure he had Egyptian support before launching his own rebellion. And while that one hadn't worked out too well, the logic behind it was sound. In both these cases, the generals in question were planning to conquer the whole Roman Empire, and knew holding Syria was insufficient unless they also held Egypt. But taking over the whole Roman Empire wasn't necessarily the goal. The critical thing was having the resources to establish a viable entity, like Postumus had done over the past ten years with the Gallic Empire in the West. If doing something similar was Zenobia's goal, and I kind of buy into the argument it was, then any kind of Palmyrene empire needed Egypt to make it sustainable. And by sustainable, I mean strong enough economically and militarily to defend against outside attack. So, yeah, we are talking about this. But before she could march off to conquer Egypt, Zenobia had a more immediate challenge. Convincing provincial governors and legions, she was doing so out of loyalty to Rome. It's likely the argument Zenobia made was composed of several parts. That the central government was weak and beleaguered, that she was responsible for defending the frontier, and that keeping Palmyra strong and secure called for a closer integration with Egypt. Odenathus, and now Vabalathus, already oversaw some eastern provinces, and all she was really suggesting now was adding one more to the list. It would still be governed in the name of Rome, but instead of by some distant and changeable emperor, by a ruler who'd leverage its numerous assets to benefit the whole Roman East. And wow, I think I just convinced myself, but I'm sure the reality was tougher. Maybe not in Syria and Cilicia, who depended on Palmyra for protection against Persia, but a ways down south in Arabia Petraea, things were a little bit different. Arabia had never faced the Sassanids, and didn't really owe Palmyra a thing. But Zenobia's plans unfortunately placed them in a very awkward position. The main land route from Syria to Egypt passed right through the middle of Arabia Petraea, and securing the province was the main prerequisite for launching an effective campaign. The current capital of Arabia Petraea was the major city of Bostra. Like the previous capital of Petra to the south, Bostra was a Nabataean city. Even today, it's well-preserved, 
with decorative gates, a magnificent theater, a basilica, a nymphaeum, a tetrapylon, baths, and the remains of the palace of King Rabel, later used by the Roman governor. It once held a temple to Jupiter Ammon, the horn-headed deity of the Libyan desert, whose priest had launched Alexander the Great on his path to world domination. And, oh yeah, lest we forget, the city of Bostra was also the base of the Third Cyrenaican Legion. Zenobia put the Palmyrene army in the hands of a general named Zabdus. As mentioned previously, Zabdus, along with another senior general named Zabai, had given Zenobia early backing in her bid for Palmyrene power. According to historian Pat Southern, Septimius Zabdus features in the history of Zosimus as the general-in-chief of the army, whereas Zabai's role was commander of Tadmor presumably with responsibility for the safety of the city and environs of Palmyra. These two generals with different spheres of influence perhaps evolved from the earlier Strategos against the Nomads and Strategos of the Peace. So, are you guys ready for this? I mean, all I'm saying is you may want to pop a Xanax, because... All the pretty rhetoric aside, Zenobia is about to go to war with Rome. Okay, so here goes. In the spring of 270 AD, the Palmyrene army marched south, and something a little bit ugly happened near Bostra. The few random snippets we have say that Trassus, the governor of Arabia, was killed and the temple of Jupiter Ammon was damaged, or possibly destroyed. According to Southern, this meager evidence suggests a short, sharp battle, resulting in a complete and rapid Palmyrene takeover. This was a fairly significant development, but it quickly found itself drowned out by an atom bomb exploding across the Tigris. Because the spring of 270 also saw the death of King Shapur, succumbing to apparent illness in his royal city of Bishapur. Winning and growing a regional empire apparently took a physical toll, since neither Shapur nor his father Ardashird made it past their 50s. Like with his father, the royal succession had already been prearranged with Shapur's youngest son, Hormizd, slated for the Persian throne. Incidentally, the prince's name, Hormizd or Ormazd, comes from the chief Zoroastrian deity, Ahura Mazda. Hormizd had been installed as great king of Armenia way back in 252, but how old he'd been when he first took power is unknown. The following year, he'd played some role in Shapur's capture of Antioch, and may have led the subsequent campaign up north into Cappadocia. After 18 years of ruling Armenia, he was likely well-groomed to be Shahanshah. But even the smoothest imperial transition would take some time and attention. 
giving Zenobia the perfect window to concentrate on Egypt. Before the army left Arabia, they had one more task to accomplish. I've mentioned before that Zenobia's father may have been chief of the Amlaki, and died in a war against their great rivals, the Tanuk. Some sources say that in 268, shortly after succeeding Odenathus, Zenobia had arranged a meeting with the Tanuk chief, Jadima, and had him killed in revenge. Whether or not that's actually true, there was definite hostility between the two tribes, and it just so happened some Tanuk lived in Arabia. While they were down there, Palmyrene forces attacked any Tanuk they found. The Nabataean city of Umm al-Jamal was apparently destroyed at around this time, possibly in fighting between the Tanuk and the Palmyrenes. So, what was waiting for Zenobia's army when they finally got to Egypt? The general sketch I laid out earlier was taken from historian Pat Southern. Enviable resources and infrastructure, but a pretty miserable economy. Egypt's wealth had always been grain, but the Ptolemies and Romans had also worked to build up industry and trade. Things had gone well in a macro sense up through the time of Marcus Aurelius, when rural unrest over high taxation led to wide-scale peasant revolts. Though they were eventually put down by our old friend Avidius Cassius, the Egyptian economy had never really recovered. Caracalla's massacre of the provincial capital hadn't really helped things much, and the recent revolt of Aemilianus had ramped up conflict and instability. As Southern notes, whole villages had been deserted, and the population had dispersed to avoid the periodic plagues, the Roman authorities, and the crippling taxation. And having lost their livelihoods as farmers, they turned to robbery. By the middle of the 3rd century, the insecurity of trade routes, caused by the raids of the bandits and desert tribesmen, had reached endemic proportions. And that's just in the interior. The coast and delta were threatened by pirates, who now infested the Mediterranean just like the Black and Aegean Seas. But, Oddly enough, this particular scenario worked to Palmyra's advantage. According to Southern, the arrival of the general Zabdus and the Palmyrene army in Egypt coincided, probably by design, with the absence of the prefect of Egypt, Tenagino Probus, who was commanding a naval expedition to attack the Mediterranean pirates. And yes, I know his name sounds familiar, but this is a different Probus. Tenagino Probus was an experienced leader, who'd held senior roles across North Africa for at least the past three years. In 267, Gallienus had made him governor of Numidia. The province's third Augustan legion, 
based in the city of Lambaesis, was the only significant military force in North Africa west of Egypt, which made its governor a critical figure for exercising Roman control. Probus was retained as governor when Claudius took the throne, but soon after that was elevated to Egyptian prefect. Even after all this time, it was still the pinnacle of an equestrian career, and implied the absolute trust of the Roman emperor. Shortly after assuming the role, Claudius assigned him the special task of intervening militarily with the Marmaridae. The desert tribe was causing trouble in the neighboring province of Cyrenaica, and Claudius ordered Probus to march out of Egypt and drive the tribesmen off. His success is implied by a local inscription, praising Claudius for his great victory. The reward for success was, of course, more work which is why the emperor sent Probus off to fight Mediterranean pirates. With Probus tied up, the Palmyrene army likely entered Egypt via Pelusium, then made for its only real metropolis, the provincial capital of Alexandria. And for this next bit, I'll quote Pat Southern at length, because her summary is pretty near perfect. In the summer of 270, Tenagino Probus was probably conducting naval operations around the islands of Crete, Cyprus, and Rhodes, and would be unaware for some time that in Egypt the troops were fighting against the Palmyrene army. Zosimus sets the size of the Palmyrene army at 70,000 men, and their opponents, the Roman and Egyptian troops, at 50,000. But these figures seem somewhat inflated. The Palmyrene seem to have had an easy victory in the first round of battles. According to Zosimus, Zabdus left 5,000 men in Egypt and returned to Syria. Then Tenagino Probus appeared, defeated the Palmyrene troops and their sympathizers, and established control of Alexandria. In turn, Zabdus marched back and defeated Probus and his Egyptian and Libyan troops. He was assisted by an officer named Timogenes, who was stationed with the Roman troops in the area. Probus had retreated to the southern end of the delta and chosen some high ground to make a stand. Timogenes took some Palmyrene and possibly some Roman troops round the rear of the defensive position, which soon became untenable against attacks from front and rear. Probus was killed in the battle, or committed suicide. Assuming she'd remained behind in Palmyra, Zenobia would have learned of her army's victory sometime in the early fall which meant it likely coincided with the second atomic bomb. Well, okay, maybe this one was more of a firecracker. Zenobia received reports from the West that Claudius Gothicus was dead. The Imperial Army had been camped at Sirmium, keeping a wary eye on the Goths, 
when Claudius had succumbed to the very same plague that had claimed so many of his enemies. His younger brother, Claudius Quintilus, had been elevated by the Roman Senate. Despite the attempt to continue the dynasty, the imperial transition was sure to be bumpy, giving Zenobia critical time to consolidate her hold over Egypt. For the first time in 300 years, the Egyptians were ruled by a queen, and Zenobia definitely played up stories of her descent from Cleopatra. Though, as I mentioned earlier, the claims were just propaganda. To mark the success of the year's campaign, Zenobia unleashed a torrent of titles. Not so much on herself, but instead on her 12-year-old son, Vabalathus. On milestones erected in Arabia Petraea, he's called Lucius Julius Aurelius Septimius Fabalathus Athenodorus, Vir Classimus Rex Consul Imperator Dux Romanorum. And I don't know about you, but I think I've just been verbally assaulted. Pretty much every title Odenathus had earned, Clarissimus Consularis, Dux, and even Imperator, were now being claimed as Vabalathus's inheritance. And in doing so, Zenobia knew she was walking a dangerous tightrope. The titles were clearly non-inheritable, and risked defending Roman officials whose support Zenobia needed. But, love it or hate it, to govern effectively, her son needed the same titles and the same authority as Odenathus. No matter how lofty the titles were, they all had one thing in common. They were absolutely 100% subservient to the authority of the Roman emperor. That was a very conscious decision and one that Zenobia reinforced through a few additional actions. The first was to let the Romans know that she had no plans to hold Egypt hostage, and the grain ships set sail from Alexandria right on schedule. For a second, slightly more calibrated message, she used the eastern mints. The minting of coins had been suspended, in both Antioch and Alexandria, on the death of Claudius Gothicus. With his brother Quintilus, an unknown factor, and rumors of growing military opposition, it seemed prudent to give things time to settle down. As it turned out, that was a pretty smart move, because after a few weeks of serving as emperor, Quintilus learned that the army had completely abandoned him. Zosimus reports that, on hearing the news, Quintilus was advised by his friends that it was probably better to take his own life than to wait and be killed by the legions. Quintilus apparently succumbed to their logic, and soon opened a vein and bled to death. So, with a new emperor poised to take power, it seemed a pretty suitable occasion to fire the eastern mints back up and start things off on the right foot. Sure, the guy might only last a few weeks, but 
why not make him feel kind of special by seeing his name and profile on some shiny new coins? The instructions Zenobia gave both mints included one major innovation. The reverse face of each new coin was to show her son Babalathus. As historian Richard Stoneman notes, he wears the laurel wreath of a Roman general, as opposed to a diadem or tiara. His head is encircled by the enigmatic series of letters V-C-R-I-M-D-R, probably to be interpreted as Vir Clarissimus Rex Imperator Dux Romanorum. The obverse face, the dominant side, was to hold the image of the Roman emperor, with the title of Augustus and a radiant crown. Oh, might as well put the guy's name on there, too. What was it again? That's right, Aurelian. If Zenobia knew anything at all about Lucius Domitius Aurelianus, it was likely only the highlights of his recent career. His fellow Illyrian, Claudius Gothicus, had raised him up in his new administration, first making him commander of the Dalmatian cavalry, then his second-in-command, or Magister Equitum. The latter was the same role Claudius had held right before becoming emperor himself, and had at least some implication of designated successor. Which was why the legions had been fairly upset when the Senate had chosen Quintilus instead. So, like Claudius, he was popular with the army, which apparently had been his lifelong home and had had some military success in fighting the Goths. Well, no surprises there. Military skills were the main skills needed in the Roman Empire of the late 3rd century, perforated on every front by the spears of hostile tribes. And even if the Goths were currently quiescent, Aurelian had quickly find himself occupied with invasions by Vandals, Sarmatians, Jathungi, and Marcomanni. For Zenobia, in late 270 AD, it only mattered that Aurelian's attention was very far from the Roman East and the growing power of Palmyra. <laughs>